0: different episode of Both in Politics. I'm here with Ryan again and we're so chuffed that you've joined us. Today we're going to be speaking to one of our colleagues at the Joint Public Issues team. Paul is a legend. He's an expert on all things economics and policy and welfare and I've certainly been learning so much from him while I've been working here and yeah really enjoyed our conversation with him. Right now, there's a big debate about what's being called the sleaze scandal with MPs' incomes. And we know that, as Christians, and as the Joint Public Issues team, we've got something to say about that. So we hope you enjoy this conversation that we have on that.
1: Super. So we are very excited uh, to welcome to this bonus edition of Faith and Politics um, our colleague and indeed boss, um, Paul Morrison. Uh, hello, Paul. Thank you for chatting to us this afternoon.
2: I've never been called boss before. I, I, I don't like it. I don't like it at all.
1: <laughs> what would what, what you prefer?
2: Oh, uh, I think Paul will do. Okay, we'll, we'll go.
1: We'll go. We'll go with Paul. Um, so, Paul, who are you? Tell us a bit about what you do and, and how you're tied in with with the work here at the Joint Public Issues Team.
2: Uh, I work with. I worked for JPIT a long time, and I've been working ar- on issues around poverty and inequality. And often that meant the benefit system during the reform years the the in the, of the last decade. And as universal credit was rolled out and the cuts were rolled out and austerity was rolled out, it was really important that we listened to people who were affected by that. And we listened to our churches that had projects trying to support people who were at, at the really the foot end of that so I, I do work around the benefit system and the economy more generally uh, and apparently I'm also your boss although I didn't realize that. <laughs> well, well thank you for coming anyway
1: and, and chatting to us Paul. So we we are calling you now in the midst of what has been a kind of crazy couple of weeks in, in British politics which all sort of started a couple of weeks ago with Um, The scandal around Owen Paterson, the Standards Commission within the House of Parliament decided that he had been breaking lobbying rules. Uh, He he was found guilty of that. And then the government uh, decided that they wanted to reform the system by which people were found to be guilty or not guilty of, of breaking those rules. And so they changed them via a vote. And then there was a lot of public outcry and everyone got upset about the way that was handled and um, people felt that it was uh, underhand and a bit dodgy, and helping out of mates. That was, you know, some of the narrative that was that was being heard. And then subsequently, of course, Owen Patterson uh, resigned and said he was moving away from the, the cruel world of politics. And in the the week that's followed, there's been a bit of a sort of fury around issues of this of this kind as well. So we've been reading articles about MPs. Uh, with second jobs and MPs who are doing consultancy work. And the climax of all of this was uh, yesterday, for when we're recording it yesterday, Boris Johnson stood up at COP and had to reassure the world that the UK is not a remotely corrupt country. So, Paul, I guess my question with all of that in mind is is just how bad a state of affairs are we in right now in, in Britain from a kind of political point of view in terms of the reliability and dependability of, of politicians.
2: I mean I, what what I found interesting about that statement was he was answering a question that wasn't answer that wasn't asked. Nobody's really said that this is a corrupt country. They did suggest that that parliament was showing signs of corruption. And I think the question is is that true? And I think I mean possi- possibly it is. I think my concern My concern lies in who has influence. And my concern lies in, is it necessary to have a large amount of money to have influence in this country? If you want to talk to an MP, does having a large amount of money, does it help? Is it necessary? If you want your worldview to be represented in parliament, do you need a large pot of cash? And increasingly, my worry is that may be the case. And I find that really, really disturbing because it's not that people who have large parts of cash's view isn't valid or worthwhile. It's not that they're not created in God's image, as we all are. It's that most people don't have a large pot of cash. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think government should be really concerned about their welfare. So uh, the, the area I know a lot about, is we know is around the welfare system. We know that there is huge amounts of lobbying done by firms who want contracts because they're very lucrative contracts to assess people for benefits, to pay out them, to do do the payment systems, to do the appointment systems, to do the security services. We know that there's large amounts of lobbying about that. And if you only listen to those people, I don't think you're going to run a good. You're going to run a good benefit system. Mm. And my, my concern is that who is being listened to, and how can ordinary people who genuinely need the help of government, how can their voice be listened to? And I was really delighted when I listened to Derek's uh, podcast here. The uh, podcast. Here uh, last month, in which you talked about meeting people going out and about and meeting people. But actually, it does feel like that isn't the predominant way that MPs get their worldview at the moment. And that if you want to influence a, uh, if you want to influence an MP's worldview, having money will really help.
0: One thing that struck me after the recent killing of David Amos was how many MPs came out defending the the structure that we have with MPs holding surgeries and normal people being able to speak to them and raise their problems. And we know that so many MPs spend time doing that, hearing from their communities and seeking out that normal opinion. But I'm sure that MPs that don't do that and there's security concerns around that, of course. Um, just to Paul, do you think that as normal citizens that we have enough access to those in power to our MPs?
2: I think that it depends on your MP, obviously, and, and some go out of their way and some, some go out of the way to avoid constituents and some go out of the way to meet them. And, and I think probably we, we could probably name ones on each side of that. But I think it isn't just about individuals because often MPs see an individual and, you know, I, we, we know MPs, from across the house who do wonderful things in terms of casework. We've got a person who's been treated badly by the DWP and they will keep phoning, they will phone up the right person and sit alongside them because the the public service isn't working well. But there's also something about, there's something that is above the problem of the individual. There's something about the structure of the world. There's something about this thing, a worldview about what the world looks like and what society feels like to people. And I think it's very easy if you're being lobbied, and you and you uh, and the people who have access to you are from a certain pa- from a certain part and strata of society, that that is your that is where you draw your your worldview and your understanding of what's go- of how the world works from. So, I I suppose it isn't just about these transactional arrangements; it's also about who it is you spend your time with. And I I think for me, the most, I I, I tell this story all the time because it's it's sort of central to the work I do, that I spent a long time looking through numbers and statements and policies. And I I visited a few food banks and, and chatted to people there. But the thing that transformed the work that I do now was I was, generously invited to a Poverty Truth Commission in Glasgow. It wasn't as part of a transaction. I wasn't solving a problem. I wasn't, I wasn't the person in a suit coming in to do something for them. They were talking about their lives and they let me listen and they let me ask some questions because I knew about the benefit system and they thought that would be interesting. And over the next two hours, it was just genuinely, there was sort of these gales of laughter as I read out DWP policies about, well, it says here, this is what happens. And they all go, oh, right. Is that why the wee man says that to me? Oh, I never knew. And suddenly you realize that the world, which the world, which the people in the Truth Commission inhabited was just vastly different from the world as described. Mm-hmm. And that by going back and having a real relationship, not a transactional not one, not one where you're saying, not, not one where you're trying to help, just one where you're trying to be a fellow human alongside someone, that's what changes how you see the world. And so my fear is that you, you employ someone for a long for a long period of time you content you're the person they talk to repeatedly suddenly your view is influenced by the person you talk to repeatedly so Mm -hmm. it's not about whether or not you announce at the start of a meeting i am i am employed by you know randox i think was that was the firm for owen patterson yes you should obey the rules that say you should do that and if he didn't then that's clearly a breach and that's but it's actually that your view of the world is taken from those repeated paid interactions and i would love it if mps went to a poverty truth commission or a food bank and they had repeated human interactions mm-hmm. with those individuals such and in, in scotland there's a system whereby There's a system whereby some truth commissioners meet senior civil servants regularly, not to discuss policy, but to have a cup of tea, Mm. to just be alongside. And I've got a feeling that MPs meet a lot of people who are concerned about high taxes. They spend a lot of time with people who are concerned about high taxes and high incomes, because that's who they meet. And it's not an unreasonable concern. My feeling is they spend less time sitting alongside and treating as an equal people who have concerns about low benefits. Mm. And if they did, I think their decisions would, ha- would become different because they knew that when I say I'm taking as they did Five years ago, they said, I'm taking £30 a week off you, even though you're, too, you're unfit to work, to incentivize you to go out and work. Mm-hmm. If they had to sit and have a cup of tea with someone who they'd just done that to, I think they would have been red-faced going through the lobby rather than happy as, as, mm-hmm. as they were at the time.
1: One of, one of our hopes at j is to see a society where the poorest and most marginalised are at the centre. What, what do you think that would practically look like from the sense of how politicians interact with, with, with the poorest and most marginalised?
2: I think, one, if the poorest and most marginalised are at the centre, then they are the politicians, as well as They become politicians and there are pathways open whereby they become politicians and there really aren't at the moment. It's extraordinary, it's extraordinarily difficult to become an MP and if, especially if you're not given a safe seat, then you have to earning a living while while campaigning is extraordinarily difficult. So, the f- the first is that there are these real roots, and one of the, the the big transformation that happened in this, in sort of post Second World War, you saw lots of people who had had low paid jobs becoming politicians, um, they did they never made up the majority the proportion of Parliament that they make up as a proportion of the population, but there was this influx of people who had that experience and knew about that world, and that transformed how policy was made. So that, but also also there is something about, and, and it's something churches should learn too, is that when people come in who are evidently in need And that happens in our food banks and that happens in our lunch clubs and everything else is we have to ask ourselves, are we feeling good about ourselves by serving them? Are we feeling is what we are doing a service, which is a good thing to do, and I'm not criticizing it, or is what we are doing an encounter in which we can be changed and they can be changed? Mm. Is it an encounter where we're both equal? Because when I read, when I read the New Testament, those, it's those encounters that are in transformative of the world and in transformative of the story. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and, and maybe I'm wrong. I am not in the encounters that MPs have, and they may do that, but I don't see very much evidence that those transformative encounters are being had regularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: no, thank you so much, Paul, um, for, coming on and sharing your wisdom and expertise with us. And then me and Ryan get the joy of getting to hear from you and learn from you all the time. So it's so good to hear from you. Thank you.
1: Thank you Paul. Cheers. So that was Paul. Uh, we're so grateful for Paul chatting to us today. Yeah, if you're interested by what he said and what he spoke about, do check us out on the JPIT website. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and we'll be back soon with another
0: episode.